All right, welcome back to RUF. Uh, we're doing the Psalms this semester. Uh, the Psalms are the hymn book for the Old Testament people of God. And uh, tonight we're going to be looking specifically at a hymn that's a, that is about worship, about calling God's people to worship. It's um, Psalm 96. So uh, you can look there and I'll read for us. This is the word of the Lord. O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens, splendor and majesty are before Him, strength and beauty are in His sanctuary." Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word tonight. We thank You for the song of your servant David, dear Lord. And as we consider this song, as we think about the topic of praise and worship and how that fits into our lives and what it means and if we can even identify with it, dear Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to teach us. We need to be open to being confronted and taught by your word. We need you to teach us, to teach through my confused thoughts and my mumbling words. Be with us, dear God. We need you. In your name we pray. Amen. Um kind of start off with a confession here that some of y'all already know and might further alienate me from the rest of you. Um, And that is my favorite television show, without fail, is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) So right now, if you want to take a moment, and maybe this ministry's not for you anymore, I understand, but, uh, and more specifically, what I really love, that is my favorite TV show, but what I've loved to come more than that, what I really love is the creator and the, the head writer's name is Joss Whedon. I think he's that one of the most wittiest, insightful, penetrating artists. He understands the human condition. He portrays it in like a funny, just powerful way. He's, an, he's a master craftsman. I think he's the best artist in Hollywood that Hollywood's produced in the last 30 years. Um, and what happened this past weekend is I actually went to go see a movie that he wrote called Cabin in the Woods. You might have heard of it. You probably saw the trailer and thought it looked like a cheesy horror movie. And that's just because you don't know what you're talking about. But that's another conversation. I drove to this movie and I took freshman Sean, he's not here tonight, Sean Tuteja, came and picked him up on campus and it was about a 30 minute drive to the movie theater. And over those 30 minutes, in what I think was a very eloquent fashion, in a winsome way that was full of humor and wit, but also insightful, with lots of detail and extensive knowledge of Joss Whedon's work, I presented to him the body of work of Joss Whedon and explained to him why I thought he would enjoy Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I don't think it was a stretch to say at the end of this conversation, as Sean even said, 
I could see myself watching a show like that. He actually anticipated, you know, maybe, maybe I'll check out Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay, here's what we're arguing tonight. That's exactly what Psalm 96 is. Exactly what Psalm 96 is. It is that 30-minute car drive. It is exactly the way I talked to Sean. Here's what's happening here. David values something deeply, shows great appreciation for it, shares it with the people around him, shows great attention to detail and care for detail and theological accuracy, and then anticipates with the people of God and with the rest of creation to then encounter what he appreciates. That's what Sean and I did. I shared with him Joss, how much I liked Joss, how much I knew about Joss, right? And then actually caused him to even anticipate encountering Joss's artwork. It's the exact same thing. See, when we talk about this idea of praise, you, right, you come into a, a bible setting, a Christian-y setting, like RUF or worship, and the, and the topic of praise and worship comes up. A lot of times we feel like we don't know how to relate to that topic. If you're a Christian, right, flurry of thoughts and feelings. Um, you may think that it's supposed to be this staid and stoic enterprise because you're one of the people who's looked at 1 Corinthians and seen where Paul has talked about how order is a part of worship, and there's supposed to be this orderly nature to it. And then, but, but you might also be the other kind of Christian, both of these are right and good, who's read the passages where David dances before the ark, and you think, that's what worship's supposed to be like. It's supposed to be expressive and loud. It's supposed to be rock and roll, none of this organ stuff. And both perspectives are wrong when they neglect the other perspective. And we're really actually not going to talk about that dynamic tonight because I'm pretty sure it's all going to be gospel bluegrass in the new heavens and new earth, so you all need to get used to that now. (laughs) If you ask Elizabeth, that's definitely what I think we'll be singing there. And I keep nudging the guy at Grace Press. I'm like, come on, bluegrass, more bluegrass, more bluegrass. But, um, But we all have these feelings about worship. We get confused by our preferences. We actually sometimes judge people with our preferences. Why don't they have ours? We think there's something less than about their view of worship. But that's not all. Uh, We're confused about the times when we don't feel a certain way when we're supposed to enter into worship. Uh, Maybe even guilt, because I don't know how to be excited about this enterprise that's called praise and worship, right? And if you're a non-Christian, if you're a skeptic, if you're here on the outside and you're looking in and you're considering things, it may be that you sat in here while we were singing and you're thinking like, this is weird, I can't identify with this, this is not real, this is actually maybe one of the things that turns you off. And what I, the first and kind of overarching point I want to make tonight is that the act of public praise is actually the climax of human experience. The act of public praise, praise with people, is the climax of human experience. This is what John Piper says. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions actually exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate and man is not. When this age is over and the countless numbers of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. Missions is a temporary necessity. Worship will abide forever. This is a call to worship in this passage. And what I want you all to see, you all, is that the question at the end of the day is not actually do you worship or not. The question at the end of the day is what do you worship? Because praise is central, I would even argue, the climax of human experience to praise. We all praise. We all praise. And what I want us to see is four perspectives on praise tonight. Um, I'm going to explain these further. Praise goes out, it goes in, it looks up, and it looks forward. All praise does. 
The first one is praise goes out. One of the things that this psalm is known for is for these first three verses. Sing the Lord a new song. Sing the Lord all the earth. Bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among the people. And what's being communicated here, one of the things people point to the psalm for is the, uh, the outward motion of praise. That praise is something that actually goes out and is evangelistic. It brings people in on its act. A, a praise is something that draws people in. We think praise is something that alienates Christians from other people. What's being depicted here is the right declares glory among the nations, declares marvelous works among all the people. It's actually praise as this gathering mechanism. This gathering mechanism of all kinds of people. And you might feel, okay, that's odd, right? I can't imagine praise being a tool for missions. Uh, for making God known at Stanford. That, that bringing people into praise would be how we make God known at Stanford. It's just, that feels weird, right? Worship is something I enjoy doing maybe with God's people. Um, but, but it's weird to think about others coming and looking in on that. I think it would be very off-putting. Right? Here's the thing. Praise that brings other people in, it's not only that it's actually not odd, it is the high point of being human. It really is. You've all experienced this point. Uh, I've experienced this point. We are praisers. We are worshipers by nature. It is what we do all the time. We're all praising things. We appreciate good things, and we speak on behalf of their goodness. That's what praise is. We like good things. We like certain types of food, certain types of art, music, videos, certain schools, right? Certain subjects, certain politicians, certain sports figures, whatever it is. We appreciate good things, right? And then we actually speak on behalf of their goodness. That's what praise is. We do it all the time. And you know how, we, uh, you know what, how most often it takes place? is actually very rarely in a private way and almost always in a very public way with the express purpose of grafting people into your praise of that object. Praise is, in its fullest expression, evangelistic. Right? That's exactly what I did with Sean. I love Joss Whedon, and I wanted to draw him into my love for Joss Whedon's work. That, y'all, that's the best part of praise, is when you love something and someone else comes alongside of you and begins to love it with you. Y'all, that's what we're all doing all the time with almost every aspect of our life. Praise is evangelistic in every other part of life. Praise is always outward going. It's always drawing in other people. This is what C.S. Lewis says. Men naturally, spontaneously praise what they value, and then they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. And that's why we get phrases like, Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that's magnificent? All those questions are asking people to join, right? Into your appreciation of something beautiful. In some ways, praise is never really complete until you share it. Y'all, praise is what we do. Uh, It it is appreciating what we value and then calling others to appreciate it as well. This is is Facebook. This is about, what, 40% of what Facebook is, is people posting articles and music they like on their wall for what purpose of getting other people to join in, right? Facebook is primarily actually a praising mechanism. Maybe not primarily, but at least half that's what it functions as. We're always in the business of praising. We're always in the business of drawing people into praise. And wouldn't it be be dehumanizing? Wouldn't it be emptying? Wouldn't it be a sad life if 
if life was not filled with praise? If you never had anything that was so good that you actually wanted to articulate its goodness to others, how empty of a life would that be? Praise is central. And that's why the question then is, what is it that you praise? What is it? And and probably the easiest way to get after that is, what is it that other people would say you praise? What is it that other people would say you draw them into? Or you're all about? Right? We praise a lot of different things. And C.S. Lewis says that's good, but what do you praise at, at its highest? What is central? And that gets into the second point, praise is outward going, it, dra- it grafts in other people, but praise also goes into us and it does work on our hearts on the inside. In verse, verses 4 through 6, David says this, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is feared above all the other gods. And he talks about these gods. All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. He calls us to praise in the first verses and then... He gives us the cause or the reason for praise in these verses. And, and it goes back to kind of begin to understand these points. One of the things, you kind of have to understand one of the things John Calvin said uh, a while ago, and, and Bob Dylan said it in his own way later. John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories, constantly producing things that we want to praise. Right? Bob Dylan said it later. He just, in one of his, the lyrics of one of his songs is, you've got to serve something. Everybody serves something. And they're both getting at what David's exposing here. He's saying there are these other gods, there are these other things that you're going to take and you're going to value deeply and find praiseworthy and you're going to press down into the center of who you are and you're going to praise it and you make it your identity. In the old world, right at this time, they were called idols. They were false gods. They were you know, fashioned out of wood and gold and things like that and they would set them on an altar in their home and they would worship them and make sacrifice to them. And that sounds foreign to us, but in Ezekiel 14, the prophet actually kind of analyzes it, and he doesn't admonish the people for making these wooden idols. He's not saying that's not what idolatry is. He admonishes them for setting up idols in their hearts. And, he, and Paul's basically reiterating what, he sa- what Ezekiel says when Paul speaks in Romans 1.25. The problem is that we exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator. You know, idols are just the thing, anything that we worship besides the ones you're God. Anything we take into the center of who we are and we, and we wrap our life around, right, that we have to have that completes us and gives us purpose. And it can be anything. It can be romance, it can be love, relationships, achievement, acknowledgement, approval, whatever it is. It can, be, it, it can be, come from a vast spectrum of things and it probably is a combination of a lot of things. And the way to figure out, the way to do diagnosis in your own heart, the way to let praise go in, right, and diagnosis, is simply this. Look at your emotions. Our emotions always reveal our hearts. What are your fears? Is your fear exposure? That reveals that what's central to you is the opinions of others, right? If I'm known, if I get exposed, I'll be a fraud in front of everybody. They'll know. And that shows that what's central, right, is our... Is, is what others think of us, the sense of approval, fear of failure in the classroom, fear of being, fear of being alone. All these things, right? All these fears. What we love, what we anticipate also reveals what we care about in this, what we've taken in the center of who we're being. It can be 
innumerable things. And you, and you really, we all have to do the work of examining what are our deepest fears and what does that reveal about what we actually care about, what's central to who us, who we are. And, and the reality is these things are actually good in their right context, but they can't bear the weight of the hope of our lives, and that's what we've placed on them, right? Whatever it is, they can't bear the weight of the hope of our lives, and that's what we've placed on them, and that's why we fall apart and we lose control and life feels over when we lose them. And David says this about God. He is to be feared above all the other gods. All the other gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And the word there literally for worthless idols is nothings. All the other gods are nothings. They're empty. They can't bear the weight of the hope we put in them. But this God, this God is the one who made the heavens. He made all the materials by which we make the other gods. Right? The splendor and the majesty and the glory that we want to place in these things and find our life in, uh, He can bear those things. He can bear the hope of your life. They're rightly His. And all the things that we trust in, they get exposed by praise. It's, it's really, this is what's happening. He's saying, all these other gods, they're empty. Have you ever been in a situation where you, where you longed for something, right? You built it up in your mind, and you finally met the reality, and it was a disappointment? Um, I've seen one episode of Storage Wars. Have you all seen this TV show? Are you all familiar with it? It's these foreclosed storage lockers, and people go around, and the owner of the storage facility auctions off these storage lockers. And they can look in from the door, and it's just always this musty scene, and, uh, and what they try to do is always try to create the sense of drama. So you have all these people who are fixing to auction off of this foreclosed-on storage locker. And in the back, there's like a blanket covering something, and this huge kind of, you know, enthusiasm and uproar ensues, and all these people start talking, and somebody thinks, you know, some vintage car, some vintage motorcycle, or this antique chest of drawers. And all, everybody gets fired up about it, and this bidding war starts, and the numbers get higher and higher and higher, and somebody finally wins the auction. And, of course, this is why the show is so interesting, they go back there and they pull the blanket off and it's like a stack of newspapers, you know? It's like thousands of newspapers. Worship exposes our hearts. It exposes the things that we've built up on, that we've, relied, that we've said, this is it, this is perfect, and we pour our resources into it, right? Just like the auctioneers. Like, I'm going to put my life and my resources and wealth and everything into this, and worship pulls the cloth off and shows us what it really is. It shows us our idol factory, the collection of things that give our lives sense and meaning. And we find out that those things are empty. They can't bear it. And so what worship is, is us coming back constantly, over and over and over again, and being reminded of what is central, what can bear the weight of hope and purpose for us. Right? We are all worshipers. We long to share what we worship. We're all praising something and anything less than the real God can't bear the weight of that worship. It will, it will tantalize us. It will lead us on. It will demand our resources. But eventually the object of worship is going to collapse into the, all the hopes we place into it. So what next? What else does David teach us about worship? Worship, it goes outward. It goes inward. Worship also looks upward. And what I mean by that is this, and I'll make this point brief. This is verses 7 through 9. We're called, ascribe to the Lord, right? So, um, speak clearly of the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to Him 
glory and strength, and this is important, ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due His name. I'll make this point briefly. This this repetition. Repetition always means emphasis. Um, He's saying this, and you are in praise and in your appreciation, give God what is due to Him. Do it in a way that actually honors and befits Him for who He really is. And what it means, what, this is what that means. Good intentions is not enough. Simply doing things because you're excited and have good intentions, feeling excited and praising God in whatever manner you want, that's, that's just as inappropriate as praising anything or anyone else in a way that doesn't befit them. So that what it means is our praise has to be seeking deep and rich theological accuracy and precision. And this is what I mean, because I know that sounds confusing. There is a right time, and for the rest of our marriage, there will be several right times where I will describe Elizabeth as awesome and as great. I will use those words for the rest of our marriage. But, if I'm only ever limited to those kind of vague expressions of appreciation... Wouldn't that say something about our marriage? If along with those expressions, we should use them, there aren't expressions of praise that demonstrate an ever-deepening knowledge and enjoyment of who she is, if, if I don't start to show a depth of knowledge of who she is, wouldn't that say something about our relationship and about the way I feel about her? If all I ever had was vague terms, right? If I'm not growing to praise her, not just because she's vaguely awesome but filling out what that means, right? Because she welcomes college students into our house and then she cleans it up the next day, right? Because she's interested in hearing all of y'all's stories all the time. Because she loves our children. She reads to them. Elizabeth is awesome because she buys me the 7.5 ounce cans of Coke Zero, which if you haven't had the 7.5 ounce can, it is the perfect size of soft drink. But you see, I can go into minute detail about how amazing she is. So yeah, she's awesome. But I can go into minute detail. And you know what? When I share the minute detail with y'all, y'all actually all appreciate her a little bit more too. You're like, she knows he likes the seven and a half ounce can. That's so weird and so particular. But look how amazing she is, right? If I only ever had shallow expressions of praise, it would reveal that I don't know her, that I'm not getting to know her better, and then ultimately I can't really claim she even means very much to me. Right? You always explore more deeply what you love so that you can enjoy it and actually express a deeper and richer and more detailed appreciation so that you can be more honoring to them, right? It's more honoring to Elizabeth for me to recognize all the multiple facets that she takes care of me and our family and, lo- and is full of love for me and our children, right? You de- I desire to honor her by, by showing how much I've invested in exploring all the different aspects of how she serves our household, Right? You give somebody honor when you seek to know them thoroughly and intricately. What this means is, y'all, it is good to say God is good. It's good to say God is great and God is awesome. But our worship should always be growing in theological complexity. And if it's not, that says something. We should seek to praise Him accurately. And if we're really growing in Him, we would seek more complex and beautiful expressions of praise for Him. We really would. And th- there's this there's idea out there that we need to keep our praise shallow because outsiders, if they came in, it would be more appealing to them if our praise was shallow. Y'all, if my praise of Elizabeth for you was always shallow, you wouldn't think much of our marriage and it wouldn't be appealing to you. It's precisely 
when I show you the details of what I love about Elizabeth that you actually find her more attractive and think, like, she's a really great woman. It's precisely, y'all, when we show that, like, we've given great attention to detail to God and who He is and express all the different intricacies of His love and His grace and His covenant faithfulness in the history of His care for His people. Y'all, that's much more appealing than let's stay shallow, right? Because we don't want to offend anybody. It's much more appealing. If I had told Sean to Teja that Joss Whedon was awesome and great, guess what? He wouldn't watch Buffy. But I went into really minute, kind of exceedingly nerdy detail about the history of his art, and that was much more appealing to Sean than shallow expressions of, of Joss Whedon being a good writer. Y'all, praise looks up at God and seeks to honor Him how He is and seeks to know Him deeper and deeper and more richly and more complexly. Praise, lastly, looks forward. Verses 10 through 13, they're kind of terrifying. They begin to anticipate the return of the king, right? Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world's established, it shall never be moved, and he will judge the peoples with equity. This is this anticipation of the end, right? The king returning. All of creation sings, right? The heavens be glad, the earth rejoice, the sea roar, all that fills it, the field exult and everything in it, and the trees of the forest sing before the Lord, before He comes. Because He's coming to judge the earth and He'll judge the world in righteousness. Praise also has a forward-looking aspect to it. A sense of anticipation. A sense of hope, right? What He's hoping for here and what He's anticipating here is the judgment. Is God coming to judge the world in equity? And this is one of those things we encounter in Scripture, it makes us nervous, right? Christian and unchristian alike. It, it's hard to deal with, it's hard to swallow, it's unfair. Uh, it, it feels unfair, right? And I'll say this one thing before I get into it. Just because certain truths are difficult doesn't make them untrue. Their difficulty doesn't make them untrue. When somebody's diagnosed with cancer, they can't just wish that that truth was untrue because they find it hard to deal with. And so here we're talking about that issue of judgment, right? That sense of God coming back and and displaying His judgment. And we feel all of a sudden that God is unfair. And maybe that's even a reason that you're skeptical of Christianity or something that's hard to swallow for you. And what I want you to see is this, or what I hope you can at least consider is this. The hardest thing to deal with about God is actually, it's not that He's unfair, In fact, I actually think it would be easier to deal with if he were unfair. It's actually his relentless fairness, which is the most difficult aspect of who he is. It's not that he's unfair. It's actually that his judgment is relentlessly fair. That's the hardest part about dealing with who he is. Because what his judgment is, is this. God allows everybody to have everything their object of worship can provide them. God allows everybody to have everything their object of worship can provide them. Our idols, our replacements of God, they can offer a lot of good things for a while. Right? If we place our life in them, devote our resources to them, God will grant you everything you can squeeze out of that idol. God is relentlessly fair. His answer to everybody as they approach their gods and they approach them is, you can have exactly what you ask for. 
That's actually what's more troubling. Because his judgment is, you may have exactly what you want. Do you want all the pleasures that you can muster and squeeze out of this life by pursuing all these other false gods? Absolutely. You can have everything you can get from it. Do you want to have nothing to do with me? Absolutely. I grant you your wish. C.S. Lewis actually says, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom. Is the greatest monument to human freedom. To everyone who says, God, I want to have nothing to do with you, he says, that's exactly what I'll give you. See, it's his fairness that's actually really troubling, isn't it? But if you know him, and, and he's begun to displace those idols in your heart, and you want God, and you want to be in his presence, and you want to enjoy him, and you want to delight in him, and you want to find something worthy of worship instead of all the crumbling things around us we cling to all the time, to you, he says, you can have it. I'll give you all that I can. And, so, and, and you see, that's why the person who, tr- who worships the one true God anticipates his return. When God comes and grants everybody their desires, he is faithful to everybody who desires him. And, and the troubling thing then, to begin to, to close, is how do we get back to that, right? How do we get there? How do we get to that point of, of desiring Him? Because we're all struggling with even desiring God, right? All throughout this entire passage, there are these little hints that we haven't mentioned yet, that we haven't picked up on. We have to look at the context in which all this praise, all this worship is happening. And the context in which praise is, and worship is honed and steeled and strengthened and enlivened, Right? and called forth and exclaimed. All throughout this psalm, there's this little theme that binds it all together. In verse 2, we hear this, Sing the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. In verse 3, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among the people. His marvelous works, that's the way the Jews would describe God's saving works. Specifically, when you said marvelous works to a Jew at this point in time, they immediately thought of that time God delivers out of slavery in Egypt. That's what that, that term meant. And when Moses pleads with Pharaoh, pleads with Pharaoh to release the Israelites from Egypt, this is actually what he says. He says, let my people go so that they may come and worship me. When God delivers his people from slavery, he's bringing them back to their purpose again, back to worship. Now, why is God, why, why is God's servant David speaking of salvation in this call to worship? And what God knows is that our hearts are actually too weak to turn from our idols and to see what's really worthy of worship. We try and we want to, and our hearts are too weak to pry those idols out of our own hearts. And so His work of salvation is really delivering us from the slavery to weak and insipid and pathetic idols that promised the world, but in the end, demand our own lives. And so we sing of His marvelous works. We sing of God delivering, of His deliverance reminding ourselves, reminding our hearts, and, and singing of His deliverance and advertising it to the world that He delivers us. Right? A God who turns back our hearts by showing grace and giving us forgiveness for pursuing all the other idols. Verse 6 is amazing. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. Where 
Is splendor, this is amazing. Where is splendor and majesty, strength and beauty most powerfully manifested? In his sanctuary. He's talking about the Old Testament temple. Saying, you want to understand? You want to see God's splendor and His beauty? You want to see His strength and His majesty most powerfully manifested? Go to the temple. Go to the sanctuary. Now, how is it that the temple is the most powerful display of God's perfections, right? See, for generation upon generation, this is what the Jews did. They went to the temple. And they would bring animals into the temple. And then what they would do is they would place their hand upon the animal. This is outlined in Leviticus. They would place their hand on the animal as they brought it to the altar. And that was a sign of them transferring their guilt to the animal, to the lamb. And the lamb would be killed. And they weren't saved by this act. They weren't saved by this ritual. It was a sacrament. It was a sign pointing them forward to the person that John the Baptist would say is the true Lamb of God who came away to take away the sins of the world. It was always pointing them towards Jesus. God shows His strength and His glory and His power and His splendor. He calls us back to worship by saying, come into the sanctuary, come into the temple, come to the place of sacrifice and see how much I love you. God shows His glory and He calls back in our hearts with the act of sacrifice. All of this is testifying to His faithfulness, to His promise from the very beginning that I will bless the people, I will bless the people, and I will bless the world. The way that praise and worship is the richest, the way it's going to become contagious, the way it's going to become uh, surgical in our own lives and, and, and affect our own living and proud other idols, the way that we're going to be drawn into Scripture and drawn into theological thinking about God, the way that we're going to begin to anticipate God's return and be excited about that, and maybe even pray for it, is through Jesus. It's through meeting God in the place. It, it was in the temple in the Old Testament, but the temple doesn't exist anymore because the temple was completed at the cross. The worship, the sacrificial worship that went on was foreshadowed and then finally found its full manifestation at the cross. You know, the way worship is going to get awesome again, it's about looking at Jesus. There's nothing worse, we've all been in this situation, there's nothing worse than trying to like something you really don't like. You know? And sometimes that's what praise feels like. The path back to a rich experience of praise is to let the gospel reach in us Frustrate us when it pries at the things we don't have to pry at. Don't pry at that thing, because I love that thing. And we slowly but surely realize that we're holding on to pride, we're holding on to false hopes, and we're holding on to nothings, right? And that right there before us is offered the only thing that really is life-restoring, the only thing that's worthy of worship. It's the forgiveness of God. It's Jesus on the cross. So how do we respond to that? We respond in praise. We go back to praise. Out of genuine love for that thing. And with that praise, we start to have conversations with people just like I had with Sean, but it's not about Buffy. It's about something that we love even more. Right? And it's not awkward. Because, y'all, there's nothing less awkward in the world than talking about the things you love. Things are only awkward. I've met with salesmen who believe in their product and salesmen who don't believe in their product. Meeting with salesmen who don't believe in their product is painful. Meeting with salesmen who believe in their product, you think you've been saved when you're done talking to them. 
Y'all might have had this experience. There's nothing less awkward than talking about what you love. And so we begin to draw people into that praise. Right? We let God confront and weed out our idols. And we wait for Him. And we anticipate and we look forward to the day that He comes again. And, and we call people into that waiting and that anticipation. Knowing that everybody's waiting. We're all waiting. We're all hoping for something. And we draw them all, the world, the nations, the people you live among, into anticipation that Jesus is coming again. Well, that is sweet. That is good praise. Let's pray.